Some of you have asked uh, some questions uh, about myself, and I'm not here really to talk about myself, but perhaps I'll give you just a quick bio. I was born and raised in Mississippi. Um, I was not raised in a Christian family. I was the first person saved in my family. And by the grace of God, I took the gospel home, and my mother got saved, and my dad got saved, and my two sisters got saved, and their husbands got saved, and the grandchildren got... They, we all got in. It's an amazing story, really. Um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Well, it really happened. I, I know they have to believe. It's not just a generic thing, but... Uh, they did all believe. That was in, well, it was August the 29th, 1970, 9 o'clock in the morning. I was there when it happened, of course, that I got saved. And uh, by the grace of God, we've been able to go on. I attended a small Bible school in northern Ontario where I met my dear wife, Anne. We've been married 37 years. We have three grown children. All are married. Our daughter, Joanne, her husband Jeremy, and their two children, Reese and Jane, are here at camp with us from San Diego, from Laurel Bible Chapel. Uh, my oldest son, Matthew, and his wife and three children uh, have been now three years in the Lord's work. Uh, my youngest son, Mark, and his wife and two twin girls, expecting a little sister soon in October, uh, are in Believer's Bible Chapel in Charlotte, North Carolina. People said, boy, they're scattered all over. And I said, well, we taught them go into all the world and preach the gospel. So perhaps that's what they're doing. But it is a pleasure to be here. I, I'm trying to remember. Maybe somebody keeps better records. I was here about seven or eight years ago. I'm not sure. But somebody reminded me that I spoke on the book of Ruth. So if you remember the messages of Ruth, that's better than remembering the messenger. And we trust the Lord will give us help this year. <coughs> um, let me uh, preface the remarks I'm about to... Actually, I'm going to read most of them, I think. But I don't think I've ever come up with anything original. Uh, I thought I did one time, and I was quite happy about some hidden spiritual truth I found that nobody else had found only to find that in the 1800s somebody wrote a whole book on it. So, nothing new under the sun. What I'm about to read to you uh, is a correlation of uh, commentaries from Bill MacDonald to Jameson Fawcett and Brown to Matthew Henry to probably a half a dozen other ones I can't remember. But it's an introduction. I thought it was so fitting, at least it touched my heart, an introduction to the book of Hebrews itself. Bear with me for a moment and let me share with you some thoughts that I glean from these various theologians who have put it in print for us. The letter was written, of course, to the Hebrews. Uh, perhaps three groups of Hebrews. The letter may be not addressed to all three groups, but there were three groups of Hebrews in New Testament times. Some were actually Christians. They had been converted. Some were professing Christians. They had even been baptized and perhaps uh, attended a local assembly, but never born again, 
by the Spirit of God. And they would ultimately, like all apostates, they would fall away. The other group were those who just flatly rejected the gospel. They would have nothing to do with this new covenant and this new Christianity. Uh, the commentators seem to agree that basically the book of Hebrews was written to two of those groups, uh, those who were true believers and those who were pretenders, uh, the apostates, of uh, so-called believers. When a Jew left his faith or his father's religion, he was looked on as a turncoat, an apostate or one that fell away from Judaism. Uh, they were often disinherited by their family or their friends. Uh, they were excommunicated by their synagogue or their congregation. Sometimes they lost their jobs. Sometimes there was harassment or physical torture or public mockery or imprisonment or death. Of course, there was always the escape. It was always the way to get out of it. And all they had to do, of course, was to renounce Christ and return to Judaism. This turncoat, as we might uh, label him, would be reminded what he had left and encouraged to return. What had, what had he left? Well, a rich heritage of the prophets the prominent ministry of angels, an association with the illustrious lawgiver, Moses, uh, the national ties with the military commander, Joshua, the glory of the Aaronic priesthood, the sacred sanctuary where God chose to meet with His people, the covenant of the law given by Moses, the divinely appointed tabernacle, furniture, and the veil. They would be reminded that they have left all of the services, all of the feast, and especially the Day of Atonement. Someone has written it like this. You can almost hear the sneers of the first century Jew presenting all of these glories and ritualistic religion then asking the question with a sneer, and what do you Christians have to replace this? Actually, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, isn't it? What do you have to replace this? The answer? Well, Christ, of course. They may suggest we have nothing but an upper room and a loaf of bread and a cup. Not much to replace the glories, the ritualistic uh, fantasies and the joys of having a religion so exuberant, so colorful, so fantastic. And they may say, you left all of that for this? A loaf and a cup and an upper room? Let me pause for a minute and suggest 
that some of you have left the trappings of religion, the tall cathedrals, the rituals, the ceremonies, and the rites, and looked down upon by your peers in that religion. What did you get in exchange? What have you got to show? And if you know the Lord, you could proudly say, with these Hebrews of old, I have Christ, which is far better. You see, in Him we have one better than the prophets. In Him we have one greater than angels. In Him we have one superior to Moses and the Aaronic priesthood, a greater military champion than Joshua, one who serves a better tabernacle, one who's given a better covenant, one who is the antitype of the tabernacle, the furniture, and the veil. One who once and for all offered himself a superior sacrifice to any of the bulls and goats of the Old Testament. And yet, for these first century Hebrews who really made the step and came apart, there was real rejection. And there was real persecution. And there was the temptation to return. Thus, they needed encouragement. They needed help. And in our text that we're going to, by the grace of God, take, take for this week, that's exactly what they would get. Encouragement to go on. To look to Jesus to look around, but to look at Him. And dear folks, again, I give you the challenge. Why don't you see if you can memorize the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. It would be a great hiding of the Word of God in your heart if you could get those verses down pat. Now, if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, I'm going to read for you those first three verses, and I'm going to read those first three verses every time that we meet. And we're going to read them over and over and over and over this week. And by the grace of God, we hope that this will implant those thoughts and principles of Christ into your heart. Looking at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1. I'm reading from the old King James. I hope it won't mess you up. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You might find it interesting to know that the word race in our text is translated the word conflict in several other places in the New Testament. We won't take time this morning to turn to those. If you're taking notes, I'll give you some references. But listen to this. Philippians 1 and 30. Having the same conflict. That is the word that is translated race in our text. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. For I would that you, know, that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, etc. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention, same word, translated race. 1 Timothy 6 and 12, fight the good fight, same word, translated race. And and 2 Timothy 4 and 7, I have fought a good fight. There's our word again. And in Hebrews 12 and 1, let us run with patience, the race. Now, could I translate it this way? Let us run with patience the conflict, the fight, the contention, and we might add the contest that is set before us. The Bible links the Christian life to a fight, a conflict. Yes, even in this translation, a race that is set before us. Now, we're going to try to break these verses up as best we can and try to understand what's going on. And I think for our time this morning, I want to start with this thought. Uh, Let us run with patience the race, and here's the thought, that is set before us. Uh, We don't get to choose the race. This is a race that God has set before us. Now, there are several things about the way or the race that is set before us. Um, God has a plan. Uh, I remember vividly the day that I trusted Christ as my Savior, uh, a Mr. Howard Borland who attended Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, was a man that led me to the Lord. He had a little four spiritual law gospel track from Campus Crusade. Campus Crusade was uh, uh, quite on the cutting edge of evangelism in 1970. Uh, I think probably they still are. I haven't kept up with them as much over the years. Uh, but I did have a chance to go for seven months 
to Arrowhead Springs, just outside of San Bernardino. Some of you know about that, I'm sure. And, uh, and to take some of the evangelistic training that they offered. Uh, it was there that I was um, enlightened, even more so, that God had a plan for my life. And dear friend, God's got a plan for your life. Uh, the psalmist would put it like this, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Uh, he would go on to say that, Yet being unformed, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Listen, you can only back it up to conception, folks. But at conception, God says, Okay, Oh, I know He knew us before the foundation of the world. But we came into view, if I could put it that way, at conception. And from conception forward, let me suggest God's got a plan. God has a, a way for you to go. Um, I didn't know that for 24 years of my life, almost 25 years of my life. I didn't know that. I didn't care about that. I didn't appreciate that. And I wasn't even looking for that. All I knew was this. I had dug a hole so deep I couldn't get out. And I had chased the illustrious butterfly of happiness all over North America and could not catch it. And uh, I had found myself empty and totally destroyed. Sometime when I give my testimony, I put it like this. I felt like that one day Jesus Christ jumped into that hole with me and said, Son, you follow me and I'll get you out of here. That was my salvation experience. Not unlike Brother Larry, and he's probably shared that or he will share parts of his testimony with you. But God's got a plan. It is a race that He sets before us. The greatest adventure in life is walking that way. The greatest adventure in life is, is fulfilling God's plan. You know, the first recorded words of the Lord Jesus at 12 years old was this, I must be about my Father's business. The last recorded words on the cross was this, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Between those two utterances of Jesus Christ, you have a man who perfectly fulfilled the will of God in his life, the God-man, the Lord Jesus himself. But you and I have a, a principle laid out for us there, and that we were created for his glory. We are to live for his glory. Listen, you and I don't live to ourselves. By the grace of God, we're here. Look, look where we are today, in a beautiful surrounding. But listen, don't let that surrounding distract you. For years and years and years, as a, as a boy and a young man in Mississippi, I enjoyed the beauty of God's creation. And I, I enjoyed it to the point that that's practically what I lived for, the out-of-doors, and hunting, and fishing, and camping, and hiking. But I never thought about the Creator. I just enjoyed the creation. Don't forget the Creator this week. Oh, He's made it all. He's spoken it into existence. And even under the curse, it's beautiful. But let me tell you, it ought to reflect one thing, and that is the designer himself, the Creator, who has, listen to me, 
a plan for you. The way that is set before you, the race that is set before us. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, something about the race. Every race has a beginning and an ending. <laughs> you know where the starting gate is? The starting line for the Christian race is Calvary, isn't it? Some way, somehow, you've got to make your place, make your way to the place called Calvary. Uh, make your way to that hill where there, only you and Him, as He looks down from the cross, and is suffering and pain and agony, and you look up to the cross, and there as you meet the man of Calvary, and He says to you, I love you. I'm doing this for you. I'm dying for you. I'm going to raise again for you. I'm bearing your sins. I'm taking your place. As you approach that place called Calvary, how do you respond to that? Oh, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about church. We're not talking about rituals and stained glass and crosses and steeples. We're talking about a man who died in your place. That's where you start the race, you know. It is there that it, if it's going to have a beginning, it's got to be there. And the place of Calvary is the place you've got to all... Everybody gets in the starting blocks at Calvary. And then, by the grace of God, we hear the pistol. Bang, it goes, and off we go unto the great race that God has set before us. But every race not only has a beginning, it has an ending. Two years ago, Larry and I had the privilege of joining with... Uh, many Christians in a gospel effort in Northern Ireland. And as we ministered to those people in the morning, as Larry ministered to those people in the morning, as I preached the gospel in the evening, we had many conversations of people who knew the Lord and some who were seeking the Lord. One particular conversation I had with a young man who I felt was very close to trusting Christ. One year later, it was in eternity. One year later. I don't know if he made the step or not. I don't know. I can tell you this. It takes a minute to be born. It takes a minute to die. It takes one minute to trust Christ and settle it for all eternity. Every race has a beginning, but it also has an ending. And, and the race will end in one of two ways, with or without Christ. But after the race ends, that's it. The rewards are given. The rewards of an eternal punishment in hell or the reward of an eternal life with Christ. Those are the two rewards. But you get one or the other. For the believer, it's a wonderful thing. One day we fall into the arms of the coach. The one who's been coaching us in the race. One day we cross the finish line either through the door of death or for His coming for us. But the race will have an ending. And we look forward to that ending. We look forward to that day that we meet our heavenly coach. But not only does uh, God have a plan, the race that is set before us, and not only does every race have a beginning and an ending, but we notice that in our verse, that is verse 1, it says we must run the race. <laughs> 
run the race. The word run means to exert oneself, to strive. You remember in Luke 13, when the disciples said, are there many going to be saved? And Jesus said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Strive. Run. Same word. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Listen to me. The gate into heaven, the, 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 the bridge across uh, uh, or the door into heaven is so narrow. Listen to me. You can't take anybody with you. By the grace of God, you will squeeze through the gate. You can't even take your Bible with you. It will be you alone that by the grace of God, by faith and through grace in the, in the, in the belief of that Jesus Christ has finished it all and done it all, only by that will you enter in to that narrow gate. But you must strive. I, uh, when I was a boy, I, I was, I had many, many things in my life, but, uh, three in particular. One was a 22 rifle. One, the other was a hound dog. And the other was, I, I went to what we call the picture show in those days. The movies. Okay? I think I watched every movie that John Wayne ever made. He's my hero, John Wayne, you know. I, I thought if I ever met John Wayne, he'd probably say, Hi, Joe, you know. <laughs> he would know me. When John Wayne was dying, a journalist interviewed him, a news anchor interviewed him. And they said, Mr. Wayne, do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever think about the life after? And John Wayne made this remark. He said, I've talked to the old man upstairs about it. I think everything's going to be okay. Well, I hope it is. I'm like an old Italian man in Sault Ste. Marie where I come from. He said, I hope nobody goes to hell. And I, I, I sure hope John Wayne knew the Lord. But let me tell you something. God is not an old man upstairs. He's not a long-bearded, gray-haired old man that sits on the throne and says, Now, you naughty children, you shouldn't do that. He is a consuming fire. And He is the one to whom we give an answer. And let me suggest for you, this is not something you roll the dice on. It's not something you say, well, I think so. Listen to me. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say, shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. Folks, this is not easy. This is hard. The devil will give you every excuse not to trust Christ. He will give you every reason to be religious. He will give you every reason to try to be as good as you can. Uh, join the Boy Scouts. Be a big brother. Do volunteer work. All of that will come into play. But that narrow gate is so narrow you must squeeze through by the grace of God. And if you and I are not careful, we will be deceived by the enemy. And one day you'll wake up in hell and wonder, what am I doing there? It's because you did not take the Scriptures seriously. Now, for the Christian, we're told to run the race. To run the race. Not, not, not to sit on the, on the benches. Not to sit on the sideline. But to run the race. 
I was traveling from uh, Toronto one year to uh, Vancouver. I, I boarded a plane. I was sitting in my seat, and I noticed a young lady came up, and she had a rather heavy carry-on. And I noticed that her left arm was in a cast. And she was having trouble getting the carry-on up into the overhead compartment. So being the southern gentleman that I am, I said, Ma'am, could I assist you? And she said, Thank you very much. And so I put her carry-on up into the overhead compartment. And I said, I couldn't help but notice that you've hurt your, your arm. She said, Yes, I, I broke my wrist in a skiing, uh, on a skiing trip in Austria. I said, Oh. I said, uh, Now you're taking a flight to Vancouver. I said, You live in Toronto? You live in Vancouver? Oh, she said, No, I'm going to Japan to the World Downhill Ski Championship. I said, with a cast on your arm? She said, I didn't come this far to give up that easy. Run the race. I don't know if you ever kept up with any of that or not, and this is years ago. Her name was Kate Pace. She was from a little town in Ontario. Well, the cast on her left arm, she won. World Championship Downhill Skiing Match in Japan. Why? She wants to run the race. For five hours or better, I had a chance to tell her about the race I was running and why I wasn't going to give up either. Is that your story today? That you've entered into the race by the grace of God. It's a race that He has set before you. It is a race that has a beginning and an ending, but it is a race, please listen to me, you got to run. you got to run the race. I think before I got saved, I thought real men could drink a quart of whiskey and drive fast cars and had pretty girls and all. These were the machos. These were the guys. I found out those are fools. Real men and real women are Christians who will not give up, who run the race, who won't slack up, who won't quit, even in the face of adversity, even in discouragement, even when the going gets tough, they just keep going. And that's what we learn from the text. We must... Run the race, exhorting, exerting oneself, striving, spend our strength. Isn't that what Paul said? I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. If he would do that for the Corinthians, wouldn't you do that for Jesus? Why aren't you going on? What has troubled you? Why are you slacking off? Why, you know, the, the questions haunt me as I give them to you. But we must all face the reality the Christian race is a race, and we must run. Let me give you another point. One thing good about taking a text of a few verses like this is that whenever we have to stop, we just stop, and we'll pick up tomorrow with the rest of it. 
And so we're going to try to get one more point in, and that is this. We must run the race according to the rules of the race. You say, well, what are the rules? Oh, you have the rule book in your hand if you have a Bible. <laughs> you say, actually, it's more than a rule book. Oh, it tells us the yes and the no's, but it really lays out the principles of Scripture. The book would be dated if it gave us two uh, concise rules. For instance, if, if the book said you should not exceed your chariot and the um, streets of Jerusalem more than seven kilometers an hour, uh, that would be dated, wouldn't it? But when it says, Obey the laws of the land, oh, and the king over you, oh, that's kind of timeless, isn't it? On one occasion, I was uh, speaking in southern Ontario. I wasn't even speaking on the subject of eternal security, but if you got any any questions about that, please come and talk to me this way. I'd love to talk to you about that subject. And I sort of alluded to eternal security, and this guy came up, and he was some kind of upset, you know, at me. And uh, he said, uh, you know, you, that that's not biblical what you just said. Not one saved, always saved. He said, you get saved, you can live like the devil if you believe that. And I said, man, if you get saved, you don't want to live like the devil, you know, if you really get saved, you know. But uh, anyhow, I said, uh, what do you mean? Well, I said, I mean this. If you sin after you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you die before you can confess that sin, you cannot take that sin into the presence of God nor into heaven. You cannot. And therefore, you will not be allowed into the presence of God. I said, you don't believe that. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. I'll prove it to you. I said, did you speed on the way to the meeting this morning? He looked at me. He said, well, I... He knew he did. He knew he did. Now he's lying, okay? See? And he said, well, I don't think I did. And I said, well, let's suppose you did. And let's suppose that while you're speeding, you had a car accident and you died. I said, what happens now? He said, I'm not talking about that kind of a sin. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, folks. We're to be under the authority of those over us. Inasmuch as they do not contradict my dedication or service to Jesus Christ. He is a higher authority. But let me tell you something. Whether it's speeding or whether it's paying my income tax or whether it, whatever it is, I've got to obey the laws of the land. There are rules to the race for the Christian. And they may not be laid out so explicitly, but there are principles. So let me, let me give you an illustration. Uh, it's an oval track. There are five runners. It's that gut-wrenching 880, okay? I mean, you just you start off full blast, you end full blast. I mean, that's just the way it goes. And so there they are. Four guys are in a bit of a pack, and they're, they're leading. And one guy falls back, and he falls back, and he falls back. He realizes, I don't have time to catch up. I, I'm done in this race. I've got to have an alternative plan. 
So what he does, he evaluates the situation, he cuts across the grass in front of the other guys, gets in front of them, and gets across the finishing line. And everybody, of course, doesn't applaud, do they? No, they don't. Why? Because he did not run according to the rules of the race. Do you know that God's got some rules for us to run by? Do you know that? He's got some principles for us to run by. This is not how would you like to run. This is not, oh yeah, wear anything, do anything, say anything, go anywhere, just take off running, man, you'll be fine. No, God doesn't work like that. God has a way. God has a place. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And God has a way for us to fulfill that plan. Paul would put it like this, that after I've preached to others, he said, I myself could be a castaway, or in another translation, be disqualified. What's he talking about? Oh, not losing his salvation. That we know. He can be disqualified from the rewards of the crowns of running the race. Why? Because doing it the wrong way. We got men and women and boys and girls in our meetings that can do anything. They're so gifted. They're so talented. But many of them are going to do it their way. Can't work with them. They're just lone rangers. They're just one-man bands. They just get out of my way. I'm talented. I'm gifted. I can do it. I'm a better administrator. I'm a better, excuse me, uh, banjo picker. No, no, nothing. And I don't even know the banjo picker. I'm just using it as an illustration, brother. You know? But the, the, the point is, they're going to do it their way. God says, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, you'll be disqualified if you try to do it your way. Tomorrow morning, that's where we're going to pick up with the thought. Running the race God's way. Let's pray. Lord, help us retain at least something today that will help us in our race for Christ's sake. Amen.